What's up, rock and rollers? Welcome to another episode of the Talk Louder podcast. Hit that subscribe button on the YouTube channel. Leave us your likes and comments. You can also leave likes and comments on our Facebook page and follow us on iTunes and Spotify. I'm Metal Dave Glessner, along with my co-host, Jason McMaster. And today we are talking to Frank Meyer, who you may know as the frontman for LA punk band Streetwalking Cheetahs, but he's also an accomplished author he is a documentary filmmaker. He grew up in Hollywood. Uh, his brother is a Hollywood actor that you may be familiar with. Lots of great stories. So we're not going to waste any time. Going to get right into our guest, ladies and gentlemen, Frank Meyer. And here he is, ladies and gentlemen, our special guest, Frank Meyer, all the way from California. How are you, Frank? I'm doing good. Ooh, good to see you. I'm, uh, I'm excited to be here, guys. I'm a big yeah. fan of all your work separately and together. Uh, well, thank you, man. We Perfect. appreciate that. It's been 100 years since I've seen you. Um, I know we talk and keep up with each other, but it's great to see you semi in the pers in person. So sure. thanks thank for you. joining us. How are things in California? Things are good, man. Things are just starting to open up around here as far as being able to you know, really play gigs and stuff. Throughout the whole pandemic, I've just been, I like immediately switched from, you know, punk rock, hard rock guy to like acoustic troubadour. So I've been playing gigs throughout this whole thing. I just had to, and I've been like, literally my, my acoustic act is me doing like Iron Maiden and Johnny Thunders and Streetwalk and Cheetah songs acoustically, which when you strip them down, they all just sound like outlaw country songs. You know what I mean? Uh, and so I just sort of flipped into doing that and I've been playing constantly. It's just that, you know, instead of playing indoors at like clubs and theaters and all the places where our bands tend to play, I've been playing patios. I've been playing outdoors. I've been playing restaurants. I've been playing to weird capacity situations. But I mean, I, I had a gig at one point that was like three hours and I had about 70, I mean, I have about 75 songs. I can pretty much just pop off so i just do these gigs where i roll in with just lists of songs no idea when i'm going to actually play i kind of gauge it based on the audience their drunkenness their whether they know my material or they just want to hear covers or whatever or whether i can just mess with them uh but that all being said uh now the cheetahs just booked the streetwalk and cheetahs my main rock band just booked our first like bunch of live dates so over the summer we're getting back to like real shows which is amazing Oh, great. Awesome. Good to hear. Good to hear. Is uh, is Texas on the itinerary? Not, well, right now we just booked five West Coast shows to just kind of get our feet wet. Like we're doing this big festival called the SoCal Hoedown in September with Nashville Pussy and uh, Super Suckers and Fishbone, a lot of you know bands that we love. And then we're doing a bunch of just headlining club shows. And then, you know, just assuming that all that goes well and that like, the government and society doesn't suddenly change its mind in three weeks and go, oh, oh we're actually restricting everything again, sorry. Um, <laughs> so assuming that everything goes cool, then yeah, we're gonna start. I mean, we have a new record out. The weird thing is that right before COVID, we recorded this album, One More Drink, and then COVID hit, and we were able to kind of finish it up and get a deal and get it out, but we haven't done a single gig to support that album. So the idea is as soon as we know, like, okay, it's cool. We can, we've done a few shows. We can book tours now. We, yeah, we're going to do an official tour for this record. And yes, tech and yes, Dave, Texas will be on the map. And yes, Dave, I'll be sleeping on your couch. If that's the next question, because I don't go to Texas or Austin specifically without staying on your couch. Okay. And you know that. Yeah. 
<laughs> this I know. Well, you touched on the new album, uh, and you, like my co-host Jason McMaster, are you're a man of many projects. And uh, so, tell us a, a, a bit more about the the new uh, Streetwalk and Cheetahs record, and then touch on some of your latest projects. This is your chance to promo what you what you got going on. Okay, hold on. Let me just. Uh... Get yeah. ready to really blast out a good promo <laughs> thing here. Uh, well, so the Cheetahs, uh, you know, I, I met you guys, you know, uh, back what, 25 something years ago, back in the 90s, when the Cheetahs uh, first started and we made a bunch of records and then we took about a decade off. And when we got back to playing, we mainly focused on live shows and we did a few singles and sort of some songs on like compilations. But we were writing the whole ways. We just didn't really, you know, sort of in this day and age of singles and stuff, we were just not really focused on like making a record. But eventually we had enough really good songs happening. So we decided to go ahead and, and make the album. And we luckily got it done right before COVID. And all we had to do at that point was do some mixing, which we could do over, you know, emails and stuff. And, um, and then kind of, you know, put the package together and it came out a few months ago on Deadbeat Records. So that was just like great timing and that we were able to do that without getting shut down. But the weird thing is the shutdown for me kind of resulted in like my most prolific year ever because all of a sudden all my musician friends were at home and half of them record could record at home. So like, for instance, the Super Suckers were on break because their tours got canceled and Eddie li Spaghetti lives in uh, San Diego and I'm in LA. So we started trading files and driving to each other and like writing and recording. And we started a band called Spaghetti and Frank. Although at this point our record's coming out over the summer and it's just called Eddie Spaghetti and Frank Meyer. We decided let's just not confuse everyone. Cause we both have so many side project bands. We're like, let's not fuck with everyone and start another entity. Let's just be these two guys. It's like when Waylon Jennings, Willie, Willie Nelson made a record. They didn't just call it a new band. They just said, it's these guys doing a thing together. <laughs> uh, so we, so that was something that kind of came out of the pandemic. And then like, I had this band I had started right before the pandemic called Blind House. I started it with uh, Brian Coakley from the Cadillac Tramps and Derek O'Brien from Social Distortion. Um, and we were up and running and doing gigs and had recorded some stuff and the pandemic hit and just due to a variety of reasons, the band kind of was on ice for a little while. So Brian and I started like a hardcore punk band called the Antivirals and wrote all these like political songs. And that record came out. And now that things are getting back, like that band is active again. And then in the meantime, I made, I read, I did, I produced and wrote three songs on the new Thor record. I played on the entire last Warrior Soul record. I'm writing the new Warrior Soul record with them. I played on the last two City Kids records. I played on the new Shameless record. I started a band with the guys from Gacy DC called the Doberman, that's sort of like a hard rock, heavy metal kind of thing. Uh, and then I launched a ton of solo stuff and just started doing my acoustic thing. Um, and I know that I'm skipping some stuff in there too, but, but at this point I basically just went into full blown, like I'm just going to wake up every day, write songs, record, record with people, collaborate, grind, grind, grind. Because while everyone else was on break, I was like, break. Uh -huh. <laughs> yeah. I, I, I went into quadruple overtime. You that's know, amazing. Well. That's that's great energy if you can keep it keep it going. Um, but like yeah. you said, it's like time. You have time, and while people are politically freaking out, you know, do I wear a mask or do I wear a mask? I'm gonna wear a mask. Do you have to wear a mask to go in here? Whatever your wherever you're standing, right? right. Whatever it looks like, rock and roll is always gonna be there for you, and I know that for you. But here's a question for you. 
when did you have time to clock in at I don't know Starbucks or wherever? Uh, you know, uh, do, do you, are you are you surviving off of the, you know, some other kind of income? Or well, so what happened with me was so my normal day job, in addition to being a musician, is I'm a director and a producer, and I've worked at either TV networks or digital companies or production this, companies. What this is you. what I wanted to talk about. I really didn't think you worked at Starbucks. Right. No, understood. Um, and so for the last, for, for 12, well, tw 11 years, I worked at NBC. And so when the Cheetahs finished our original run of touring and I, and we took a break and essentially broke up, I kind of reevaluated my thing. I was having a kid at the time and I was just like, man, I can't, continue living like a homeless person essentially i got married and i wanted to kind of have a real life i continued to play music the whole time i continued to make records i even continued to tour just not the way that i used to tour where we would go like eight weeks long in a van and just you know we'd all quit our day jobs and just throw caution to the wind so i kind of just started being a little bit smarter about how i was doing music and how i was actually making money and for me the way that i made my money i.e like my career became um, in production. So originally I started, I was a writer. I, I wrote a Ramones book. I've written like eight books since, but I'd written a Ramones book and I'd written a lot of stuff for TV and digital that got me into NBC. I started producing and then directing while at a, I was at NBC. Eventually that took me to Fender and I was uh, directing and producing all of their digital content and the content for the Fender play app, which is their uh, app for how to learn how to play guitar. Mm -hmm. And, um, I was doing that. And then when COVID hit, Fender laid off a bunch of people and laid off a bunch of people from digital. And I took that hit. I got laid off. And so that's when I just kind of went like, fuck it, man. I'm just going to dig into music. And then, you know, I just started hustling in the sense that I used to do a lot of session work for free. That's over. I just said, okay, from now on, I'll, I can do backing vocals, I can do keyboards, but here's my rate, you know, the rate chain, but I, I got a rate now. And I started charging everyone. But because I do good work, everyone started coming back and telling their friends. And I started getting a lot of work out of that. And I started really grinding on songs and then trying to sell songs to other artists or, or like collaborate, split publishing. And I got a bunch of that stuff placed. I had uh, finished editing a second feature documentary film. I got a book deal to write a new book. So I just basically just kept fucking grinding, 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 just going like, well, if I don't have this big corporation paying my rent, essentially, then I got to do it myself. And no, it's not going to be Starbucks and it's not going to be bartending. It's going to be guitar playing and singing and songwriting and hustling. And, or, and I also, or editing, directing, field producing. I do a lot of shit. So uh, where that leaves me now is that, you know, I'm going to probably end up, going back to a job like I had before, because quite frankly, it pays way better than rock and roll. <laughs> uh, that being said, I'm just, I'm, I've never been one of these guys who um, like, stop. Like I never gonna go like, well, now I'm gonna do this and maybe I'll come back to rock later. Like I've always played, I've, I've, been, I've been on over a hundred records. Like I've never stopped doing that. It's just adjusting it to my lifestyle and adjusting it, you know, cause I don't want to be a, a poor person really that's <laughs> what it comes yeah. down to yeah. and then along the way i also directed a bunch of documentary films so i but but you know it's not like like that it sounds like oh he does all these things i don't even it really all it is is i'm an artist it's all kind of the same thing you know yeah you you've always been and um i feel like i've mentioned this 
uh, when I when I walk towards you or when I walk away from you that you have this. And I've already probably said it three times. I'm going to say it again. You have obviously for people listening, you have this amazing. Uh, you're hyper, bro. You're you're just got energy. <laughs> you're on top of it. You um you know you've all it, when one project is ending, you've already got five more ready to go in the wings, ready to hop on. Whether it's hop on the stage or hop into the studio or, you know, play the tracks that you've lined up uh, for the song you wrote this morning. Right, right. right. Well, thank uh, you. I th so I'm going to take that as a compliment. I think yeah, it's take a compliment. It, it, uh, is, <laughs> it is a compliment because, uh, you know, some of, you know, other artists, you know, I'm not even pointing at me. Other artists, you know, are struggling right now because of weird times and struggling right now because of uh, some kind of demon. Right. Or uh, and you don't have that. At least I don't know you to have that. You know, everybody does have that. Do you ever um, you ever find yourself um, where you just you, you can't you can't be the artist part because of what you got to do for money? Uh, no, I've never. That's, that's what I thought. No, I've never stopped being an artist. I've never stopped writing songs. And, and I always just kind of adjust it to how much time I have you know what I mean meaning right this last year in terms of being an artist was great I mean don't get me wrong I wouldn't have wished a pandemic upon the planet for me to have a great year doing art but um I had all sorts of time you know what I mean so and, and I'm not a guy who sleeps a ton as you can wild guess and uh I ha you know I get up early I drink a cup of coffee and I start my day and it usually means jumping right into some idea I've had the night or the week before something I'm working on and I my whole world is just post-its with notes and organized sort of like do this, do this, get this done, end up here. Um, but, you know, the reality is if I'm coming home from working a day job of eight hours, even if the, or 10 hours or whatever, but even if the day job is a sort of fun or, you know, what you perceive as like, hey, you're a director, like that's a fun gig. Like it is a fun gig, but any job you do for eight, 10 hours a day, five days a week, after a while, that's a fucking job. You know what I mean? Like you, you come home tired, you come home fried, you come home burnt. And how much energy I have at that point, you know, different than this last year, because right now I just wake up and do art until I crash. Well, um, like it's a, it would be the same thing as a, I'll, I'll relate that to uh, if you're making a record, I mean, it's not always, you know, you're not, you're not a rock star when you're making a record. No, it's the opposite of that. Yeah. Like it, it, if you're, if you're trying to make a good record with good songs, it's the opposite of all the glamor and glitz. Yeah. It's, it's hard and, and it's torturous and you're like second guessing yourself and your bros right. and everyone's fighting over ideas that maybe in the end don't even make the goddamn record. <laughs> or, or it's worse than that. I mean, you know, uh, whatever expectations, you know, somebody else in the studio with you, like you said, whether it's not an argument or not, what their expectations may not be what your expectations are. And maybe that should have been worked out in pre-production rehearsal or something. But, you know, it can be it can be a touchy situation. But in your work where you're directing or or just, uh, you know, working for NBC or working on a film, that's not always going to be. Oh, this is awesome. This is going to wait a minute. Uh, you know, you got to. Yeah, yeah, it's a range. Of course, it's a range. Right. It's, yeah. You're doing, I mean, everything, depending on the gig, you, you wear, 
I step into a lot of different roles in, in my life. And, and I think a lot of it's just adjusting and knowing like your place in that situation. So if I'm the lead singer or if I'm the director on a set, like, you know, I'm the quarterback, you know, I'm kind of running the show and everyone's sort of looking to me for direction. And that's one role to play. Um, but if you're the side man in the band, you like when I've worked with like, you know, Wayne Kramer or Sylvain Sylvain or Cheetah Chrome, where I'm, I'm like the second guitar player or the lead singer, but for the band centered around a guitar player, then my role is not really as the band leader. I'm there for support. I'm there as, as, as a cast member to be told essentially, do it the way I want you to do it, says the person that's hired me to do it. And that's a different role too. But then when I'm a director, or, uh, or say a, a producer in the sense, uh, not the lead role, but like those are all also behind the scenes roles as opposed to on stage roles. So like when I'm working on a set in a production capacity, it's a completely different mindset than being a performer because I'm there to support whoever is actually on camera and make sure they're getting everything they need. And, and you know, I might be running it from a behind the scenes standpoint, but really the person on camera is the number one focus of my attention, the camera's attention, the, you know, the whole set's attention. So at that point, I'm, I'm really there to support them. And that's a totally different role than being, you know, and I think one reason why I've probably gotten to be fairly good in the production world is that I've done all of those roles. So. I've been on camera and been the guy being asked the questions. I've been behind camera being the guy like Dave asking the questions, the journalist. I've been the director of the shoot, the producer of the shoot, the editor of the shoot who wasn't even on the shoot but got all the dailies and had to cut it together with time code. And I've been the publicist who then had to get the fucking thing sold to, you know, to the media. So like I kind of get you've the also entire been, process. You've also been on the other side of the camera in the spotlight too. Right, right, exactly. And, and therefore... As a when I'm a director or producer and I'm in that role, I find that I'm very sort of sympathetic or or at least sort of um, aware of where everyone's head is at because like I've been the guy on camera, so like when I see the the talent, for instance, and if I was directing a Fender piece, where where we were teaching say a Cream song on guitar, and this instructor who's a brilliant guitar player. Uh, is teaching the song, but they have to stick to our language and they're reading off a teleprompter. But in terms of like a workflow, they're like, they're, their lines aren't necessarily fed to them, but like the information in those lines is being fed to them in a structured way. But they're also having to play Eric Clapton, which is bluesy and has feel. So it's a lot, of, you know, you're demanding of, of, a, of talent at that moment. And I can tell when I'm watching them, like I can look in their eyes and go like, oh, they've got this. They're just, I don't need to do, I'm just got to stay out of the way. And I can tell when I'm like, mm, something is, there's something like something's bothering them. They're distracted. And that's where, you know, the guy who's been the one on camera being nervous or being distracted. Now I'm the director of seeing it. And I know exactly how to solve that problem. Cause I go, okay, he just, person just needs someone to come up and go you cool and talk to them a little bit work them through whatever or solve the problem for them that they don't really want to say is a problem or whatever the fuck it is but so i just have found that being in production like the strongest the, my my best talent at this point is just knowing everyone's role and having done it all and knowing the bigger picture so like if i'm on a shoot and we have a 12-hour day and all of a sudden and we had 18 shots to get and we're at 
11th hour and we only have 15 shots and I know there's no way we're going to get the last four shots and something has to be cut. I, in my head, I can start going, okay, well, here's what we're going to do. We're going to use the pickup from this. And we're going to do this. We're going to cut this. And with this shot, we don't need to, we got a safety on this or, you know, and I can just kind of bob and weave and go, okay, let's solve it. You know what I mean? And right. not freak and not freak out and melt down and go, oh, but I was supposed to be on schedule. Right. Like that always bothers me when I work with folks that like, you know, that can't roll with punches. I'm just like, dude, that's the real gig. Well, I want to, I want to switch gears a little bit, but I definitely want to come back because you've recently, fairly recently won an award for one of your films that it's an adaptation of one of your books, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. (laughs) And I want to talk about your book deal. And uh, I also want to hand you over to Dave because I'm sure he's got some stuff to throw at you as well. But what was the, this is kind of a fun thing and it sort of brings everybody together back onto the stage here. What the what the name what was the name of your band that opened for or played with Broken Teeth, um, like two thousand seven? Yeah, something it was in Hollywood or it, L.A. What what was remind me of all that because I that, forgot. So after the cheetahs broke Hold up, on, something in the Pharaohs. Uh, no, it was Angus Khan. That's right, Angus Khan, and it basically was a heavy metal band, sort of a biker metal band in the spirit of, of like Zodiac, Mind Warp. Yeah, and it was members of the B movie Rats and the Street Walking Cheetahs, two That's sort right. of dirty, sleazy rock LA bands, came together and sort of formed this metal band. It was after the Cheetahs broke up and the Rats had broke up, and we just decided to do something really extreme and face melting. And we did one of our first shows, I think, was with with Broken Teeth in LA at the Knitting Factory. And what was that? Knitting Factory. That's yeah. right. That's right. Yeah. I liked the venue a lot. That was cool. Is that place still around? No, it 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 lasted maybe eight, ten years, and eventually just didn't didn't make it. It's rough doing a nightclub on Hollywood Boulevard, right in the thick of that. You know, the whole man's Chinese thing. There's so many restrictions for noise and zoning, and they, uh, I I think it had a lot more to do with just the location. Of that it was spot. it was freaking nice yeah it was a nice club yeah, yeah it seemed like there was a restaurant or something adjacent or attached to it or yeah something. yeah they had a really good kitchen and the whole thing they had three yeah. different rooms with stages and i used I to live i used to live at that place man wow i don't know if you remember and maybe you don't because it wasn't like we were following each other around although that would have been fine um but the lady who discovered dangerous toys was at that show Oh, uh, her her sister, her husband, and uh, it was family night for them. They all came to the show. Heard I was going to be in town and came to that show. And they're they're you know they weren't used to staying up that late because I remember we everything was kind of like going sure. on kind of late that night. And also Gene Hoagland was there, uh, and William Howell was there. So I had this old school like family of like. God, I want to say half a century, you know, we're, we're all there under the roof. So it's a night I'll never forget. I just didn't remember. I, I thought it was Pharaoh, but you said Khan, like Genghis am Khan. I, and, am I crazy or maybe I'm mixing this up, but was Jet Boy on that show too? I don't think so. No. Okay. Maybe we did another no. show with Jet Boy. I think our first couple shows, like one of them was with you guys. One was with Jet Boy. Okay. But uh, yeah. Yeah. Pretty fun. I wanted to see if, uh, I don't know if we can make this sort of the Cliff's Notes version, but for the benefit of people listening and watching that don't know the history of the three of us, um, Frank, do you, do you remember how we all kind of became connected 
because I always thought that was a great story because it ultimately came full circle. And I mean, here we are 20 years later, 20. Well, I, I remember most of it. I don't remember the exact gig that I met you at, but what I, and you can fill in the blanks, but what I remember is that the cheetahs were touring and we, I think it was a South by Southwest gig. We played Austin and we met you and, you know, back in those days, we never would book hotels or anything ahead of time because we would just hope that some nice person would offer us their floor to sleep on. And if not, then in worst case scenario, we'd go to a Super 8 motel or just the cheapest, you know, dirtbag place we could find. Uh, but Dave was nice enough to offer to let us sleep on his couch. And we all went to his place and stayed up and drank beers and listened. We watched Thin Lizzy videos and ACDC videos and listened to music. And he says to us at some point, like, hey, you've got to hear this band, Broken Teeth. It's the singer of Dangerous Toys Band. And at that time, no disrespect, Jason, of course, because I've since become a very big Dangerous Toys fan, and I'm a huge fan of all your bands. Um, but at that moment, the only song I knew from Dangerous Toys was Teasing and Pleasing, and it wasn't really my bag. And I was like, ah, I don't want to hear it. No. And Dave was like, no, 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 no. I'm telling you, this is the shit. You guys are going to love it. We're like, all right. New nope, guy, the nope. new guy that we just met, who's trying to sell us some bullshit. No, and then he <laughs> taken it all. No offense taken. He put in broken teeth, uh, and put. I'll never forget it because he put in the song Undertaker, and we were all like, "Man, we don't want to hear." Whoa, hey, oh, this is all right. And the song went on, and we all just started freaking out and loving it. And we we left the next morning and took Dave's copy of the record. We we're like, "You gotta let us take this. We have to listen to it on tour." He's like, "Yeah, I know these guys. I'll I'll get another copy." So we took his CD and we rolled around on tour for the next month. And the last date of our tour was going to be back in Austin. Oh no, I know what it was. Is that we started the tour in Austin, what year? but it wasn't South what, what year is this? It would have been two thousand, I think. Oh damn. And, and so we we played an Austin date and then we toured for a month and then we were coming back for South by Southwest. And halfway through our tour, I called up Dave and I was like, dude, we are all loving this record so much. We've we've been sound checking with Undertaker and we've learned it. Can you call Jason and see if by the time we come back for our South by Southwest show, which was the Casino El Camino show with the Hangman, um, could you uh, see if maybe he'd want to come sing Undertaker? And we also happen to do uh, Sanctuary by Maiden, right. if he knows that too. Yeah. And so Dave calls you, Jason, and then calls me back and says, yeah, Jason says he's in. And so the funny part is we'd never actually met before we got on stage together. We'd never performed the song live before. We'd only sound checked with it with me sort of kind of singing. So the whole thing was, and we definitely had never done Sanctuary with you before. So the whole thing was, you know, flying by the seat of our pants. But that's how we all met and the show went great. There's a bootleg of it on YouTube. And yeah. Yeah. Uh, it sounds yeah, somebody, pretty confident. Somebody, uh taped it on uh, their, their phone their, or their something phone, and yeah. it actually sounded all right you know and the funny thing is you can see david frick from rolling stone head standing at the yeah. head banging and standing yeah. at the back of the club yeah, yeah. you can right. so that's, the thing the thing i remember when a dude from rolling stone is over there going yeah and yeah. it's some like dirt bags up there playing covers <laughs> playing yeah. maiden covers <laughs> yeah. so, so prior to everything that frank just said because that that's the story i was getting at but um, I, I, I bumped into the street walking cheetahs completely by accident. It was South by Southwest. I'm dead on my feet. It's like day number four, night number four, something like that. Maybe number five. I don't know. I go to red eye fly and the bill is the bulimics 
the streetwalker cheetahs, the backyard babies, and the dragons. And I'd never seen any of those bands before except the bulimics because they were local. And the streetwalker cheetahs just blew me away. And so did the backyard babies and the dragons. The dragons became one of my favorite bands, as, as Jason knows very well. And uh, I went away just raving about the streetwalker cheetahs, streetwalker cheetahs, streetwalker cheetahs. And Jason uh, is on the internet and he finds something. I didn't know anything about the band except the name and the performance I saw. And Jason sends me this little tidbit from somewhere on the internet. And he goes, here's that band you won't shut up about, the streetwalking cheetahs. <laughs> so I start reading into the, uh, the article, whatever it was. And there it, it, it reveals that Frank Meyer is the managing editor of knac.com or oh. something like that. Mm -hmm. And I was like, oh, my God, this guy, he's, he's, he's the head honcho at this uh, online metal hard rock right. website thing. And so I contacted him because Jason forwarded this link to me. And then I ultimately started writing for Frank. Yeah. And yeah. those were good times because KNAC had deep pockets, man. <laughs> yeah, we were we were Clear Channel and we were paying good money for stories back then. And this was sort of in the last bit of the heyday of, you know, of of when being in the music industry, when you could still kind of get like dumb money thrown at you once in a while. It all it all evaporated quickly after that. Yeah. But um, KNAC was um, a radio, you know, the Long Beach famous heavy metal radio station. And when they went off the air, they got revived as an online radio station and they had funding through Clear Channel and a bunch of folks like Bob Ezrin, the famous music producer, and uh, Lon Friend, the journalist from RIP Magazine. They were all sort of like the chairmen of the board and they brought me in as the managing editor and they threw me a shockingly good budget at paying writers. And so I just started reaching out to writers and that's where I met you, Dave, and, and a lot of other folks along the way. Uh, but it was a cool time because it's like, I was in a touring rock band and managing this website that was all about rock bands. And so I was able to kind of do a lot of like networking and meeting folks like, you know, that were either musicians I could, you know, do cool things with or, drink lots of beers with or journalists like yourself. And of course we became, you know, friends and stayed in touch and stuff yeah. for, for many years. And I, and I also wanted to point out that that relationship, the one that we're talking about between the three of us also resulted in this. Right. Yes, right. It's, it's got a glare on it on my camera, but it is a compilation broken teeth slash street walking cheetahs album or EP, I guess. Read the more. track listing on that. That's yeah. just from the dark ages. What the hell is on that? Set? Well, you know, because what I remember is that both of our bands at that time were, had started recordings that ended up becoming albums. But at the time, they weren't necessarily, they were just sort of the batch of songs we had recorded. So we had like four or five songs. And I think you guys had four or five songs. And all of them, I think, ended up on whatever our both collective next records were, but yeah. they originally appeared on this EP. What, what are the tunes? So, so this thing came out in 2002 on, I'm going to need my glasses here, but it was on changes one records. Right. And uh, the cheetahs did when God and the devil agree strain strangled by love and born leader and broken teeth did devil money hanging by the skin and crash landing affair. Right. And, oh, and I wrote the liner notes to this thing, too. Of course you Oh, did. there you go. Well, well, well. It's just a coincidence <laughs> that you happen to have it there. 
Yeah, yeah. well, I wasn't going to let this conversation go without bringing up the fact that you you two have not only merged as friends and as uh, peers that respect each other, but you also felt spoke or felt highly enough about each other to to combine your bands and put out an album together. Which I, I want to point out good. right now, just the the sheer awesomeness of like rock fans meeting in a dark club or shall i say alley and then quick becoming quick friends and then you know trading tunes and ideas and words just that celebrate um everything that we do and then it's like dominoes after that just tick 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 yeah. it's all yeah. tick 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 everything's just kind of working the way the way that it is and and like the things that you know, it's like, oh, well, we did a split and like Dave wrote the liner notes and got up and did a couple songs in South by and then, you know, Frank's band played with Broken Teeth and blah, blah, blah. I just think that all of those connections uh, are beautiful moments. And I just want to like raise the torch and and uh, say, this is why me and Dave have a podcast. <laughs> yeah, it, it really yeah. is because of all of these sort of thousand points of lights that come together uh all the time there's yeah. like uh it's it's a serious business it's well, and, so, and so much of it I, I feel like especially amongst music lovers art lovers musicians but you don't necessarily have to play a, a, an instrument but that like it's all about finding the people with the same record collection like you meet people along the way where you have like a conversation <laughs> with them you're like ah you got the same fucking record collection i do like you get it and like you know you meet people where you're like oh the, you know that's cool this guy has good taste this okay that's cool this guy's a good guitar player but then once in a while you meet people where you're just like ah you you have venom and hanoi rocks like i do you get it okay cool you know because like when we were kids i just remember it was like the punks were over here and the Heshers were over here and the hippies were over here. And it was like, you know, we all kind of were listening to each other's music, but like your identity kind of kept you in one zone. And now I just feel like as time's gone on, as rock has gone on, like now we all just like, you just let it all hang out. And it's like, I listen to just such a huge wide variety and wide swath of music. But I know when I meet someone in five minutes, I'm like, oh, you have, like, as far as rock and roll goes or whatever, you and me, like, we got this thing. You like Motorhead? I can tell you like Motorhead. I can tell you like Too Fast for Love and don't like Girls, Girls, Girls. I can tell the kind of guy. I can tell you're a Roth guy and not a Hagar guy. You know what I mean? Like, you just go, like, I get, you know what I mean? Like, you just, you speak the same language. You go, you know what I mean? You go, oh, okay, yep, you... You actually know there was two singers, three singers in Maiden. You're not like one of these casual metal guys. I get it. Yeah. We're cool. Right. You know? Yeah. Right. So exactly. And and that's again what Jason said earlier, why we have this podcast, because we're uh, you know, we're connecting with those types of people because it, it's it's uh it's just a magical thing when you find your kindred spirit or your your own type of people or whatever. And so many friendships are, are have become longstanding based on something as simple as you were wearing the right T-shirt one night, yeah. or I saw your band and fell in love with your band, and then I told a buddy, and before you know it, here we are, twenty-five years later, <laughs> and we're talking about this sort of stuff. So wasn't wasn't John, who was in the Cheetahs or worked for the che played bass in the Cheetahs, like tour managing Anvil? Yes. Uh, John Ramirez from yes. the she was in the Cheetahs. Uh yeah. yes, he did tour manage Anvil. He also played in Thor's band for a while. He's led a pretty pretty mighty 
mighty career. <laughs> John, John, the running joke between me and John is one time when the cheetahs came back through Austin, they stayed at my place again. Uh, you guys stayed with me twice because you had a different bass player each time. One time you had John and one time you had Jeff Watson. Jeff, yeah, yeah. And the time that John stayed, the guys got in the van, took off, and I don't know, I think John has told me that they were somewhere in El Paso when he realized he didn't have his keys. <laughs> yeah, that sounds about right. And they were still on my coffee table, so I had to send them to him, you know, send them to an address in L.A., and I guess he was waiting for him, or they were waiting for him when he got home. Um, That's a very I, John Ramirez moment, for sure. That's a bummer. Anxiety. <laughs> it's, it's become a running joke. I think it's the thing that... that yeah, but no, hold on. Let me back to the story. You're on the road. What the <laughs> fuck do you need your house keys for? No, exactly. And why would you, in any situation, why would you take them out and put them on the table of a dude you just met and then get, let's just assume, really high? Like, there's just, like, you know what? You know what the one thing I don't fuck with the entire time I'm on tour until, like, the second I get in the van, I go zip, and I don't touch my keys until I get out of the van on the last day of the tour. And I go unzip, get in my car, and I go home. There's <laughs> no reason to touch your keys anywhere in between there. But And I love John Ramirez, but he's like one of those guys who's like, he gets, wherever he goes, he goes, oh, put this here, put the put this thing over. And I was like, what? why are you unpacking? <laughs> don't ever unpack. Right. That was, that was, that was funny. And I said, uh, 10 years I didn't unpack. He and I still laugh about that. I wanted to ask you, Frank, you touched on this earlier. Um, you mentioned the Ramones book. It's called On the, Ro on the Road with the Ramones. Um, I was lucky enough to have a hand in that, a very small hand, but it was an honor to be part of it. And uh, you co-wrote the book with Monty Melnick, who was the Ramones uh, tour manager for basically their entire existence. I don't know if he was there from day one, but he was there for 99% of the time. He, he was there before day one. Okay, so Monty Melnick uh, is like the fifth Ramon, and you wrote this book with Monty, and uh, I have a copy, and I've read it, and I highly recommend it to anybody out there. But what I wanted to know from you is in working with Monty on the book, uh, what did you get to know about him that maybe you didn't know before, or, or what, was, what was something you could tell us about Monty that we don't know as the general public because of that interaction? Well yeah, so um, you're right that Monty was the tour manager for the Ramones for their entire career. He actually, him and Tommy had started a rehearsal and recording studio, which is where the Ramones uh, ended up rehearsing and, and hooking up with Tommy. So uh, in the early stages when they were just like rehearsing their set and maybe having some friends over and kind of just like showcasing for some of their friends, Monty was doing the lights and, and doing the sound and stuff. Cause he was, you know, he's Tommy's buddy. And um, then when they hit CBGB's Monty started off doing the lights and at some points was doing sound, doing the lights, but eventually became the tour manager once they hit the road. And he stuck with them the entire time. And then even after the band broke up, he went on to work with Marky and CJ and uh, and Joey in their various incarnations, touring, recording, whatever. Um, I think he only missed like two gigs ever in the 27 years he was with them. And that was just like nights that he caught the flu or you know had a cold or whatever. Um, and so the book we wrote, which is in eight different languages and in 
five different pressings now is sort of his story of the Ramones from his point of view through that filter of being on the road. Because really, when they would go record, he would still stick with them. Like he would go into the studio because, you know, all the gear had to be, they had cartage companies who would you know, get the gear to the studio and all that stuff had to be sort of dealt with and maintained. And he's, he's stuck with them. Uh, but really, his life and the Ramones' life mainly during their career was touring, touring, touring. That's where they, you know, wrote a lot of songs about touring. Um, I guess the couple things I could tell you that maybe some or interesting Monty things is that uh, when I wrote the book, I spent about two weeks living at his apartment, and he had an extra room in his apartment. And he was like, "Yeah, you can come, you know, stay in this room, and we'll, you know, we'll every day we set up interviews, and like we'd wake up, he and I would talk, we'd do an interview, then we'd bop around, talk to people affiliated with the band or band members or family members, roadies, whatever, and then we'd end up, you know." together again and I'd do maybe an interview at the end of the night and then every night when I go to sleep I went into this guest room but the guest room was where he kept all of his Ramones memorabilia so it was like Joey's jacket hanging there and his gloves and like all of their passports and just stacks and stacks of like posters and tour merchandise and all this stuff so like every night I'd be like good night Monty I'm definitely not spending the next several hours awake leafing through your stuff. And then I would spend the next several hours awake leafing through all the stuff. But that actually was sort of what inspired the artwork of the book is that like he had so much rad stuff and he, it was, he was kind of meticulous about how he kept it all filed and stored. So as I was going through it, I was getting all these ideas like, oh, we should have a page with all the passport photos and we should have a page with like, like we should put Joey's gloves on like a scanner and, you know, like get a cool picture, sort of 3D picture of the gloves. And so that those two weeks were like a really cool time for Monty and I to bond as friends and really come up with the meat of the book. But also um, I just got to sit there and like sort of his own little Ramones museum. Yeah. Uh, and the only other thing I'll tell you that's sort of interesting about Monty is that, you know, he had a whole music career before uh, the Ramones and him and Tommy played in a band that was sort of like a groovy 70s rock band. And um, he had a few bands before that. And, uh, you know, he was a real musician, like he was a good, solid musician, had made a couple records. So unlike a lot of, you know, not to disparage any crew personnel and stuff, but you know, a lot of crew guys are musicians, guitar players, a lot of guitar techs are guitar players, but not a lot of them necessarily like made a bunch of records and stuff. Monty actually had kind of a legit career. I mean, he was sort of on the fringe of success, but he he was doing all right. And it just sort of happened that the Ramones ended up being the thing that took him to fame. Yeah. Um, but as the sort of behind the scenes guy. I think that's the thing I like about the book. Being a fan, I've read, I think, every book you can get your hands on that's related to the Ramones. But that book, because it's from the perspective of the, the tour manager and they were such road dogs, you really get that sort of in the van, behind the scenes sort of uh, perspective of one of the hardest working bands ever. And it, it, it's, it doesn't shy away from the frustration and the personality clashes and the what the fuck are we doing and, you know, why, why are we even bothering kind of, you know, it's, it's really, really well done. And, uh, it's, you know, the, the pages are quality, it's glossy pages and color photos, and it was really well done. Thanks, and, man. Uh, yeah. It's called on the road with the Ramones for anyone listening. And uh, you should definitely go check it out. If you know, I actually, I did a second book 
essentially about the Ramones, but it's more specifically about the Phil Spector era of the Ramones. I did it for Rhino and it's called When the Wall of Sound Met the New York Underground. And it's about the album End of the Century and sort of honing specifically in on like the relationship between Phil Spector and the Ramones. Um, so it's it's a shorter kind of ebook essentially. Yeah. Um, but if you like on the road with the Ramones or you want, or you're really fascinated with the Ramones or Phil Spector, you can pick it up on Amazon and Kindle and all that stuff. But I actually did a second Ramones book. That's how much I love the Ramones. Yeah. Yeah. Um, no wonder you guys are kindred spirits. Yeah. Right. <laughs> well, I mean, I also, so then after that, I worked with Niels Lozauer on his first, cause he's done a few Van Halen books, but his first one, which was called Van Halen, a visual history, um, I was the editor on that book. And then I worked with Dave Mustaine on his book, his debut book, um, where he he went through two different publishing companies and a few different ghostwriters. I mean, not ghostwriters, I mean, collaborators on that book. I mean, he wrote the book, but he was writing it with someone like me. Um, and so I was one of the guys who worked on that record, I mean, on that uh, book. And then I did a book with Walter Yost Jr., the sports photographer, uh, Sports Illustrated guy did a book with him, and I did two books about raising kids: a book called Diaper Dude and a book called From Dude to Dad. And God, I feel like there's another book in there that I'm forgetting. Weren't you doing books. something? Weren't you? Uh, weren't you pursuing something with David Lee Roth, or had something in the works? Or yeah, uh, right before Dave joined Van Halen. So I used to write for this magazine called Pop Smear, and it was like this New York sort of rock and roll, humor, edgy magazine. And I had interviewed Dave for that, and I'm a huge Van Halen fan, specifically of the David Lee Roth era. And um, he really liked my interview. I think just it was a, sort of came out in a time when his career wasn't going so great, and a lot of people were kind of kicking him when he was down. And I wrote this piece and did a few pieces that was kind of just celebrating why David Lee Roth is awesome from like a genuine sort of fan perspective. But, you know, I mean, well-written, not like some goofy fan thing, but it had this sort of fun spirit that I think Dave was like, yes, this is the way, you know, I want this, this younger generation to sort of perceive me. And so Dave and I started working together. It's insane in that he, he basically allowed me to do a whole bunch of interviews. Anytime he was doing something, he would just give me carte blanche. You know, I could go to his house, I could get you know front row of any press conference, and he would just wow. hook me up. And then we, and then we, he really liked my Ramones book. And in fact, he's in the Ramones book. He participated in it. He, I was, I told him I, when I got the deal, I was like, you know, you toured with the Ramones. Can I get you in the book? He's like, yeah, man, whatever you want. So went over to his house and interviewed him about the Ramones, and we had this like rapport going on you know where where uh he liked the way that i was sort of um profiling him in the media and i'm an easy hang so it you know wasn't like having some annoying journalist around all the time we mainly would just drink tequila and talk and i would turn them into these cool articles that felt like they were in the spirit of dave's whole kind of personality which as you can tell jason going back to you know my whole you know i've got that very diamond dave kind of energy you can see why i'm a big fan of his so it, 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 we clicked obviously yeah that was um, an, that was an easy call there right right you could see where he and i would just be like and we just you know we would spend six hours and just like not even stop and then anyway so what happened was um 
I came up with this idea for doing a book with him and I approached him for it and he was totally down for it. And we wrote a proposal for it and we sent it to CAA, his agents at the time. And they were like, yeah, this is great. And then he informed me through his manager um, that he was taking the summer off and he was going to go be an EMT and in New York. And when, um, when he got back, we would pick up on the book. But the EMT New York trip turned into him getting the Howard Stern offer to replace Stern when Stern went to Sirius. So he just stayed in New York and did that. And then they told me, just chill. He'll be doing this for a little while. And then that ended up blowing up. He came back and then joined Van Halen again and then fired all of his managers and went over to Irving Azoff's management who managed Van Halen. So at the time, I mean, I, you know, I had Dave's number and stuff, but, but I still, I was very respectful. Like I wouldn't just call Dave up on, on his, like I had his number, but I would always go through management and kind of handle it, you know, correctly and stuff. And so my man, my contact to him no longer was his manager. And, um, I didn't, and I didn't really at that point, I, I think I put in one or two calls to A's off just saying like, hey, I got this book thing and never heard back and just figured, all right, well, he's in Van Halen land now, as well he should be. I, I was the first one to be excited about that. Um, and it just kind of fizzled. Um, recently, believe it or not, that project has actually started to take some other uh, legs. So who knows, it's not necessarily dead yet. But yeah, we wrote a whole book proposal and a whole thing for a book that he and I were going to write together. And I'll tell you a couple other funny little sidebars because you guys are Van Halen nerds. And I did have a few pretty wild times with Dave. And I won't get into the what. What I'll tell you is this. Here's two interesting things. Um, one is the last time I went over to Dave's manager's house, who was a guy named Matt Sencio. His brother was a VJ, something else Sencio on, on um, MTV at one point. But this guy, Matt Sencio, was Dave's manager. And so I, he, he calls me over to his house and I'm going over to talk about doing the book with him. And it happens, this is the day that Hagar and Halen announced that ill-fated 2004 tour where Eddie was all fucked up and it all, you know, sort of like fell apart. Yeah. So I go over to Matt's house and Matt says, Dave wants me to give you this book. He really likes your Ramones book and he's jazzed about this book idea you guys are gonna do. And he's got this book that he got and he wants you to just borrow it and take a look at it for inspiration. What he handed me was, there's a, a super, super limited edition David Bowie, Mick Rock photo book that they made together that is the most fucking unbelievable book you ever every page is a different paper stock three pages unite and form artwork it's the thickest most insane it, i believe it was five thousand dollars a book or some insane and it's signed to dave by david bowie and mick rock oh nice and i still have it Oh, I bet. Because that was the last time I saw any of them. So I, he goes, take this book. Dave wants you to have this book for inspiration. And then four months later, everyone got fired. I'm like, but I still have the book. And I still have the book. But even more insane is that I said to him, I go, man, you know, I got to say, it's kind of a bummer that we're sitting here having this conversation when Van Halen and Hagar just announced the tour. You and I both know it should have been fucking Van Halen and Dave that we're announcing a tour and he goes yeah I know you know we all know about the whole you know 97 MTV award show where they try to get it together and it just fell apart and you know they 
did those couple recordings, you know, me wise magic and all that stuff, but I just couldn't keep it together. And, I, and I'm like, going, yeah, yeah, I know. And he goes, and then there was the, you know, the recording sessions at 5150 back in 2000. Like, oh, what? I never heard that. And he goes, oh, well, yeah, I guess not a lot of people know this, but in 2000, they got together at 5150 with all of them, meaning Michael and wrote and recorded a bunch of songs. And I'm like, I have not, and I'm a Van Halen freak, but at this point in 2004, no one had heard that. And I was like, you, you mean to tell me that the original Van Halen a couple of years ago and wrote songs and recorded them? And he goes, yeah, wanna hear them? <laughs> and I heard him. So hold on, so Roth is saying, yeah, you wanna hear him? No, this is Ross oh. manager. Okay. All and right. Ross manager yeah. had the board tapes oh. of the 5150 okay. sessions of okay. all four members doing the songs that became a different kind of truth, but okay. way earlier. So the ones I heard was um uh as is, trouble with never, um stay frosty. And a couple, basically all the songs that weren't the ones that, be, that, that, that stemmed from old ones, you know, meaning like, like Tattoo was an old, that was a Down in Flames. She's the Woman was an old song. But four songs on that record started off as old Van Halen demos that they reworked. The other ones were the new songs they wrote in 2000 and that I heard the live in the studio 5150 versions of. And the crazy part is that they all stopped right halfway through, like the band on a dime would stop. And after like he played me a couple songs, I was like, why do they keep stopping? Why aren't they incomplete? And he goes, Dave wouldn't let them because Dave's whole thing was, it was all so tentative and he got fucked the last time. And the, here they were at Eddie's studio where Eddie owned all the tapes and all the equipment and who knows what was going to happen. So he made a deal that he would go in for a month and record the record, you know, get it all started, but that they couldn't, they couldn't fully record any song and therefore none of it could be released later without Dave having to go and re-record it. Right. So there was no complete versions, but there was about five songs with incomplete versions and I heard the whole fucking thing. Wow. You, 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 <laughs> you, and maybe like, uh, flies on the wall. Yeah. Like no one's heard that. No one's heard that. Who, yeah. who else? Who else? I mean, I've is, never met any, I mean, I've talked to Dweezil Zappa about this. He's never heard that sure. stuff. I, well, as far band, as I know, Wolf, Wolfgang and Alex and Eddie and Michael, I mean, not Eddie, yeah. obviously, but, yeah. um, yeah. So, yeah. uh, and then, and on the subject of Van Halen, wasn't there, weren't you invited to Eddie Van Halen's house for some kind of party or well, something? Well, so that was, that was the other thing. So, yeah, I went around, uh, what time? this would have been 2008-ish or something. He, so the, the woman that he ended up marrying, uh, uh, Janie, yeah. she was the publicist for an adult film company called Digital Playground. And, you know, she wasn't, in the adult industry, she was the publicist for them, and she was the publicist yeah. for a lot of companies. But she was a representative. Yeah, this was, and this was in that era when like porn was just starting to go mainstream, and all of a sudden, all the more mainstream porn companies had like their girls were in rock videos, and they had big time publicists. And Jenna Jameson was on E Entertainment News and all this shit. So this is sort of that little window. Anyways, Janie um, 
there was a, a director named Michael Nin. He was a European porn director and he made a movie and I believe he somehow met Eddie and he got Eddie to score the movie. And I believe that's how Eddie met Janie was through the digital playground connection of doing that movie. And when the movie came out, they had a party at Eddie's house and you can go on YouTube and see all this footage um, where it was basically a big open bar, like porno party. I mean, it wasn't like open sex and stuff, but there was like naked chicks and, you know, people hanging from rafters and it was crazy. And then there was a stage set up and a backing band and Eddie did a full set with the backing band of Van Halen songs and a bunch of covers. He did Rebel Yell and stuff. And this was when Eddie was not in the best of health. He was kind of, you know, this is when he was a really not so great period. Um, but he, it was amazing. I stood three feet away from him, saw him do a whole set. He was ripping on stage. And the funny part is when we went up there, we had to park at Valley College down the street and then leave our car and take a tram up Coldwater Canyon to Eddie's 5150 Mansion studio house thing. And because they didn't want to, you know, line of traffic down Mulholland Drive or whatever. And the whole time they kept telling us no phones, no pictures. Eddie's probably not even going to be hanging out with people. He's going to be upstairs. But if you see him, this is his house. He does not want to be bothered. Please don't approach him. You know, we're like, oh, of course, of course, of course. I mean, we're so honored. We were going to Eddie Van Halen's house. We're just like, whatever the rules are, we will play by them. We will read them like the Torah. And we get there, and I swear to God, do you, know, do you guys know a guy named Scotty Slam? You know the drummer Scotty Slam? He, played, he now plays in Circus of Power, but uh, he's been in a million bands. Scotty Slam was with me. So me and Dino from the Cheetahs, who had left our cell phones in our car because we were born so heavily, and Scotty Slam, who did not leave his in his car, we walk in, and after this whole thing, we stand in line. We're like, do you think Ed, we're even going to see Eddie? We walk in the door, and there's Eddie standing right in his living room in jeans, bare feet, no shirt, holding the Frankenstein guitar. And the first thing he says, hey, welcome to my house. You guys want pictures? And we're like, what? And then my friend Scotty pulls out a camera and goes, fuck yeah, and takes pictures and we all get pictures with Eddie. And then we just spent the whole night partying at his house. It was incredible. That's awesome. It's unbelievable. <laughs> Not a lot of people can say that. That is no. awesome. That's awesome. Oh, one other quick, and this is a quick one of Van Halen's story. So after all the stuff with Dave, like maybe a year goes by and I hadn't talked to him, and I never had any formal conversation with him where we said, oh, I guess we're not doing the book anymore. It just sort of dissipated, right? So now it's a year later and, and, and they're announcing at a hotel in Beverly Hills, all four members of Van Halen, meaning the three originals of Wolfgang, are going to appear for the first time and announce their tour. And I want to go just because I'm a fan. You know, I'm not looking to hook up with Dave. I was like, want to go. So I pulled off to a friend from Warner Brothers just getting a press pass to go. And so we're standing like behind the, the red velvet rope in this ballroom that Van Halen's about to walk into and announce their tour. And she goes, don't you know David Lee Roth? Aren't you guys like friends or something? And I go, well, I don't know if I know him. Does anyone know David? I mean, I've met him a bunch of times. I've been to his house, but like, I don't know. I feel like he probably doesn't really know me, but yes, I've met him before. He's nice. And then lights go down, jump comes on, spotlight hits this door, door opens, Eddie and Dave 
arms, holding hands, walk out triumphant. Al walks out, Mikey, I mean, uh, Wolfgang walks out. It's just, we're all like, oh my God, it's happening, it's happening. And I swear to God, this entire thing's on YouTube and there's a camera and you can watch this moment happen. As they're walking, Dave sees me and goes, Fred Meyer, and walks up and gives me a big hug and goes, good to see you, buddy. All right, talk to you later. And I'm just sitting there stunned. And yeah. the, girl, the girl I'm with goes, well, fuck, I'd say you know him. Jesus, that was incredible. <laughs> and so then they do the whole press conference. And I'm just sitting there like going, I can't believe this. I can't believe this. It's Dave and Eddie. And he, Dave is sort of running the show. And he goes like, you know, and may I take any questions from the illustrious members of our press brigade here? And every person in the room, I didn't even have a question, but just every person in the room went, uh, yeah. And he goes, <laughs> Frank Meyer. And I was like, I didn't even have a question. I went, uh. And so I just softballed him and went like, what kind of songs will you guys be performing on this first tour together? And he was like, glad you asked. The greatest cavalcade of rock and roll Americana. I just, I just like yeah. threw him a softball and he just fucking hit it right out of the park. <laughs> of course. That's awesome. That's probably why I called him. He was like, Frank will fucking just roll me right into my next speech, you know? That's awesome. <laughs> yeah. That's yeah, he worked fun. the room. He took the he he's looking for window. <laughs> yeah, he's looking at the Rolling Stone guy going, no, no, no. He's gonna ask me something about my voice. No, no, he's gonna, Meyer's gonna be cool. <laughs> you know? Yeah, he's looking for the, the soft seat. Dave, Dave, uh, do you think will this tour be amazing or beyond amazing? Yeah. <laughs> I'm glad you asked, Frank. Beyond amazing is the only stratosphere I swim in. Yeah, that sounds like a Roth quote, right? <laughs> so uh, I wanted to go back along the same lines as the my question earlier about Monty Melnick. Um, we've we've barely touched on, and 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 I know we could go on forever, but uh, you've collaborated with some of the uh, some of the biggest names in punk rock: uh, Wayne Kramer from the MC5, James Williamson from the Stooges. Uh, Cheetah Chrome from the Dead Boys, Sylvain Sylvain from the New York Dolls. Uh, you've worked with Eddie Spaghetti extensively, but um, going back to the sort of those Hall of Famer guys, um, much like the Monty question, was there anything you learned from those guys or anything that stood out that was sort of a, a moment that you kind of took to heart and went, yeah, I'm, I'm going to incorporate whatever, some of whatever this person just said, because it's coming from someone I totally respect and I hadn't thought of it that way before. Yeah. I mean, all, all those folks that I've gotten to work with are, are amazing musicians and it's always an honor to play with them. And you always pick up, you know, something, even if it's just standing, even if it's just getting to stand on stage five feet away from, you know, a woman like Shuri Curry from the runaways, who's just a fucking master at her craft. Like you watch her do it and every move is just like flawless and her voice is just so good. And you, so sometimes just being in the same, you know, zone as them, you're kind of picking up on like this, on professionalism, you know, and then charisma and just attack or, or how they engage with the audience and all that stuff as a, as a performer and as a musician, those are all like, like good tips. You know what I mean? You pick up on how other people do it. Yeah. Um, you know, for instance, um, when we first, even though, as you can tell, I'm a pretty verbose person, uh, in real life, on stage with the cheetahs, I never really talk a lot. I kind we, we kind of just do the fear Ramones thing, where we just pound through the set, and that's sort of like our thing is that we just do this relentless amount of energy and music and whatever time frame we have. 
and kind of let it all hang out. And I don't really do a lot of chit chatting because um, it just doesn't feel appropriate for what is happening sonically and, and energy wise in that band. Um, but when we toured with the Super Suckers, for instance, um, and I always liked them as a band, but Eddie Spaghetti had a great way of engaging with the audience. He, he, he was funny, but never seemed like he was telling jokes. He was very kind of homespun and seemed like he was sort of one of the dudes, yet, yet absolutely portrayed himself as a larger-than-life rock star. And I loved the way that he sort of handled that and the way he handled the crowd. So that would be an example of, like, touring with someone who was, you know, they were a few years ahead of us, but they were essentially our contemporaries and kind of going like, oh, man, I like the way he's doing that thing. Like, you know, musically, yeah, I mean, they're a great band, but I wasn't necessarily influenced by the Super Suckers. But that was something I picked up on where I was like, from one performer relating to another, I was like, I like the way he's doing that. But as far as the sort of more old school legends, I mean, I did a bunch of tours playing guitar, second guitar with Wayne Kramer. And those were... Uh, amazingly educational times for me as a guitar player. I mean, don't get me wrong, Wayne is a great songwriter, he's a great singer, and I've played with a lot of great musicians um, and great, you know, performers we all admire. But Wayne, you know, he's a jazz guy as well as being a rock guy. And up until I played with Wayne, I still feel like my overall headspace was sort of pentatonic scales and blues scales and sort of thinking in boxes, you know, as a guitar player, you kind of have your boxes, like here's my open run I can do, and then halfway down the neck, here's this run, and then up the 12th fret, here's this run, and here's the ways I can connect them. And you sort of look at the guitar neck in boxes, and if you, you know, you get really good, the boxes go away. But he was like, that concept doesn't even apply to Wayne. He doesn't think in terms of boxes, or if he does, they went away so so far before I met him that like we would do these gigs where I had to play the Fred Sonic Smith parts and he was doing his Wayne Kramer parts in these these MC5 songs and I would learn the stuff at least the way I heard it on the record and then you usually he'd kind of correct me on or you know give me some detail work like oh you've almost got it but here this that and this but then we would do these guitar duels on like Ramalama, Fa Fa Fa, or Kick Out the Jams, or whatever, where we would trade licks or do unison stuff. And that's where I found I was very quickly outclassed. And I played with a lot of guitar players, but Wayne was so fucking far left that like if we traded licks, I just sounded like a dude at Guitar Center noodling on a blues scale compared to the avant-garde like like saber dance that he was doing. You know what I mean? And so I remember him saying to me, I, I feel like it was at a rehearsal or a sound check maybe, but we were working on doing this guitar trade-off thing. And he goes, no, 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 man, you're playing too straight. You're playing too straight. And I'm kind of going like, well, I don't know what you mean. The song's in E, I'm playing an E. I mean, I'm playing loose and funky. I'm not sure what you mean, too straight. And he goes, no, 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 lose the key. I go, what? I mean, lose the key. And he goes, don't be confined by the key. And I was like a, a major mind-blowing. That's easy for me. Well, it's, <laughs> I play it's, guitar. That's easy for me. I mean, it's singers have a, it's a different thing with a singer because you can kind of make, 
I don't know. It, I mean, I sing and play guitar and you're making different choices. And I know what you mean that sometimes like if I can't hit the notes, I'll just make different choices and go like, I'm going to be a third underneath what I normally would sing or I'm going to just drop down an octave. But I mean, I'm still usually in the realm of like a choice that is appropriate sonically and melodically to the song. Yeah. Whereas Wayne was kind of just going like, no, you're thinking of it all wrong. You're thinking in terms of boxes, you're thinking in terms of scales, you're thinking in terms of rules. And I'm telling you, lose the rules. And now we can, we can dance together. Right. And I really didn't know what that meant until I was on stage with Wayne in fucking Detroit, you know, at, at the magic stick with, you know, white stripes opened up for us and we're doing an all MC5 set. And all of a sudden, and the people are going fucking crazy and we're doing these guitar duels. And I kind of, all of a sudden, like I just lost the rules and I was like, fuck it, I don't need to be, I started making, going all avant-garde jazz, Sonny Chirac on this shit. And he was like, now you've got it, you know? <laughs> and so I, it was a big, it was a lesson for me to learn that, 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 there, that there is, the rules are only the ones that you put on yourself. You put rules, you know, you say I'm gonna write a Chuck Berry song, okay, then you put some rules on it by saying it's gonna be it's gonna be sort of like this. But you don't have to think that way. Right. So, I, I can I can relate to that by way of um you know, I've been teaching music for 15 years and I uh you know, I try to make it fun for everybody, but when you have someone who's confined to rules, say they have some choir experience mm -hmm. and they come in and it's all like you said, they, they've learned all these rules and I'm going, okay, now let's break them. Right. So learn all the rules first. It doesn't so that you can break them. Yeah, that's right. right. So that sounds like what, what you sort of like, he gave you the ring to wear that would be okay to break all the fucking rules like rock and roll should. Right. And I just don't think at that time in my brain that I, I was thinking that way. And he kind of just opened me up and I was listening to jazz and stuff. I mean, I started listening to Sun Ra and Pharaoh Sanders and Miles because of the MC5. I was never really a big jazz guy until I started hearing the MC5 and the Stooges and Funkadelic and knowing all that was coming out of the scene from these cats that were super into Sun Ra and Pharaoh Sanders. And I was like, well, how? How am I listening to MC5 covering Sun Ra and Pharaoh Sanders? And I'm not into funk Sun Ra and Pharaoh Sanders. So I started picking up that stuff. And, and then like the avant-garde era of Miles Davis when he was doing like Live Evil and Bitches Brew, I got to Pangea. Like that is some crazy ass shit, man. He's way out of jazz at that point. He's into some acid rock, funk, jazz, soul, gospel. He, he's 10 genres at once just colliding with each other. And, so like when, you know what I mean? And that's sort of where my head started to go at that time where I was just listening to stuff kind of from a different point of view going like, punk rock's cool, but those are, there's some rules happening there that I've been sticking to. And now I want to just break from those rules too, you know? Yeah. Yeah. That's a, that's also um, a, a, a stretch to the audience as well. Like if an audience is used to punk rock and they're seeing a guy from the MC5 completely uh levitate into yeah. uh, this other color this other riding a a, a rainbow magic mm -hmm. carpet around the room and you're like what am i seeing yeah. right now yeah, the first um, time i saw wayne play and this was before i this was a couple years before i met him and became friends with him right when he came to la he put out a record called the hard stuff on epitaph and i met him shortly after that and by the time he put out his next record, he and I were friends and collaborating and stuff. 
But the first time I saw him play with the hard stuff, he had this three-piece band with Brock Avery on drums. I don't know if you know him. And um, and Randy Bradbury, who went on to be, and I think still is in Pennywise on bass. And it was just a three-piece. And I'm telling you, to this day, that is the greatest three-piece rock band I've ever seen in my life. Those guys, like... I had the experience without being on acid that I'm sure Wayne must have had seeing Sun Ra. Like you just said the word levitate. Like these guys, it was rock. They, I saw them a bunch of times and they, it was rock and roll and it was punk rock and it was everything you'd think the guy from the MC5 would be doing, but it was jazz and free form and they would do these jams that were just, they melted my brain. I, didn't, I could not wrap my head around it. I still can't wrap my head around. It. But those are those are uh, monolith words. Those are like gigantic statues of words you just said because you've seen yeah, so much, I saw and, it. right? And written about it. You know, you saw it. You went home because you had to write a piece or a book or right. make a movie or a da 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 da. And now you're you've won awards <laughs> from the things that you've seen and witnessed and put together in the words that you write in the scenes that you put together, that you've directed, that you've basically created around the story that you've seen with your own eyes. You put to film, you asked all the right questions. No, Hats thanks, off, man. dude. Hats thanks, off. Man. Yeah. Well, it's funny too, because my movies are all about hip hop. Well, not all. The first one was about a heavy metal guy, Thor. But my second one was about a, a rapper. And my third one is about freestyle rapping. And you want to hear something funny? Mm -hmm. I'd probably way I'd probably be way more into watching the one about the hip hop guy, the Wu Tang guy, right? Than it would be Thor, the metal one, sure. And sure. that would be that surprise. I'm sitting here wearing a heavy metal, metal shirt, and I'm a headbanger and all this shit. But Thor is one of those things, and I'm just confessing my non interest in Thor sure. because it's such a it's such like a gas. It's a party thing. It's not to be taken so serious. And I'm just more serious about my metal when it comes to, well, when you talk about Thor, there's just not enough there. But uh, I think that it's, that it's amazing that you took an underground sort of creature like Thor and actually helped him be legit again and then again and every time i feel like someone like you works with someone like because the guy i mean he would how many movies did he star in as a million i mean yeah. the thing with thor to me that was the most i mean I, like you guys i'm a metal nerd and yeah. i you know i i was reading kerrang and buying venom and thor and rogue mail and hanoi rocks and everything that looked cool in kerrang magazine back in the day and that was Rock my and record roll, collection yeah. um and so I knew Thor back then, but, you know, yes, it was sort of sticky, sort of schlocky yeah. kind of uh, shock rock or whatever. Well, and but, it worked with the movie, the movies he was making, worked yeah. with the music he was making. The movies so and, yeah, it all kind of worked. This thing well, and he was Comic-Con Comic type of a vibe. Right. What I've always had a fascination with, and I, this is probably kind of a through line through a lot of my art, if you look at the books I've written, the movies, and, uh, and, and the people I've worked with. Is I love cult heroes, and I love people who kind of um, come up with something different or unique, even if it's ridiculous, and they just of 
and, and then they just stick to it, defying all logic, defying all reality, defying any sense of what accomplishment versus failure is. Any other normal person would go, geez, I've, I've been doing gladiator metal for 50 years now and it's not really selling. Like why? But Thor just goes, oh, it's still on the, I'm on the cusp of success. I can feel it. Yeah, but at the same time, whether he needs you or not, I'm saying he needs you. He needs people well, like you who are sure. pushing him into the light. No, dude, you, one more time. You, you're going to mm -hmm. love it. And then once you get him out into the light and he's, you've got a band, your you're, guitar, no, microphone, face the crowd. No, right. put the loincloth on. Come on, get the hammer. You can do it. Play play heavy metal, God, because you are. Da, da, da. He needs you because of what you said. You know, it's not really selling. Da, 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 da. That's what I'm trying to say. Take right. the compliment. Right. Thank you. Well, thank yep. you. But I, I, I'm, I've always been fascinated with underdogs. I think that's just something that I, I it's a story that I've always loved in, in art and in music. But, the, you know, I mean, I, I love the Stones. I love ACDC. I love Van Halen. I love the big bands, Zeppelin. But I also was always into, like, Johnny Thunders and the Dolls and MC5. And then I also loved, like, Wendy O. Williams and Thor and the Plasmatics and Wasp. And, you know, and I love cheesy, like, I love, you know, Blade Runner. But I think I like Trancers even more than Blade Runner because oh, it's yeah. like a B-movie knockoff version. And it's got even more heart. And, you know, so it's like, but that's where my head's at. Like, I love the scrappy underdog. I love the ones with the shitty budgets and the giant ideas that don't quite pull it off, but kind of awesomely pull off something even better. You know what I mean? Yes, so guys I like Thor, like, you know, I mean, Judas Priest, sure, better songwriters than Thor, of course. But, but Thor somehow, to me, is a more interesting character because it's so weird and so unique and such a flawed idea from the get-go. And everyone sees it but him. And he just blindly, every guy, you know, just goes into the, with his giant axe, goes into the fight representing heavy metal. And, and reality and logic every year must just say to him, like, you know, this isn't going to work out. He goes, I know, I fuck you. You know what I mean? Like, you got to love a guy like that. Well, it's like, a, it's, it's like El Duce or something. Yeah, yeah. What are you trying to do? You're hurting yourself. You're hurting people's feelings. You, I mean, I'm telling you, you, I remember... 15 years ago, Thor telling me that he, that, that like, he, he would blow up these hot water bottles. And I think like the cornea in his eye was like disconnecting from his eyeball from like his head swelling. And like his doctor was like, you have to stop. I mean, it's, I know exactly why this is happening. It's because you're blowing up hot water bottles and you're 16, you have to stop this. And he'd be like, well, I mean, you know, uh, and he called me one day and he was having this sort of, you know, fight within himself about whether he should stop doing it. I'm like, yeah, listen to your doctor, dude. I'm like, you have to stop it. And and he was like, you know, maybe I should just retire. And that was 15 years ago. Guys right. still fucking doing no. it. Yeah. <laughs> Frank, let me ask you one more uh before we move on. Uh, I wanted to go back to your books uh because they're 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 a little bit outside of the realm that you're known for, I, in my opinion. I, I I think you're primarily known as sort of a punk rock, rock and roll kind of guy. And you're also uh known for your work in the hip hop world as far as documentaries or documentaries and things of that nature. But I want to go back to the book because I thought that was a really interesting take on a subject. And uh, and you fill in the blanks and correct me where needed, but uh, Diaper Dude and I forget the title of the other one. It was similar. From Dude, from dude to Dad. From Dude to Dad. Mm -hmm. and, and they're basically they're basically your take on fatherhood. Is that correct? Yeah, I mean, 
they're, they're essentially self-help books for new fathers. The first one is, uh, I wrote it with a guy named Chris Pagula and um, we collaborated and we both had different takes of being fathers because I, by the time I met him and was writing this book, I was a single father and he had been married to the, you know, his high school, his college sweetheart and had three kids. So we both were doing this experience, but from very different points of view. And um, the idea was with, with uh, the first book from Dude to Dad, it was like everything men need to know during the time that a woman is pregnant. So you've got her pregnant, you're freaking out, you got nine months, you got to figure it all out. What do you need to do? How much, your classes, you know, diets, all these things that guys are clueless about. We discovered that the books out there either tended to be very sort of scientific and kind of research paper-y and i.e. no fun at all to read, you know, and or they were these sort of real like manly men book going like, yeah, hey guys, and then it's cool because their tips will get big like a porn star and everyone's cool with that. And I'm going like, my wife wouldn't buy me this fucking like, this reads like a penthouse letters version of tips for dads, you know? <laughs> so we thought, because I would read articles in like Vanity Fair and Esquire and Rolling Stone that, you know, maybe not about this particular subject, but you know, you'd read these articles that were sort of like smart anecdotal articles that were sort of telling you informative stuff, but in kind of like a more anecdotal, like fun read and easy breezy kind of read. We're like, oh, wow, I just learned about the subject, but it didn't really feel all that like homeworky. It was kind of a good read. You know, like when you're on the plane, you end up buying like Vanity Fair and you're like, I don't know what the fuck, I need to read something. And then you end up reading some article, you're like, fuck, that was really good. Who knew Portugal sounded like such a delight? Um, <laughs> so we thought if we could do an article or we could do a book that read more like those articles and then we would just sort of throw in all of the, the, you know, the hard facts that you need to know as like sidebars or just sort of slip them in so that it didn't feel so homeworky and felt like more of a fun read. So that's, um, that's what From Dude to Dad was, and it did really well, and they asked us to do another one. So the next one, Diaper Dude, was basically like everything a new father needs to know from zero to two. So they just got born, and everything from baby food to stroller advice and, you know, car seats and just all the things that your brain is going like, what do I do with that? I don't, I don't know anything about this stuff. So we sort of kept the same voice and approach of that first book and just yeah. I think that's awesome. I think it speaks to your, uh, your wide ranging creativity. You go from jamming with, uh, Wayne Kramer mm -hmm. to writing books on how to buy a stroller. And, and, and it's all done with, uh, this sort of enthusiasm that I think shines through. And, and that's what makes it so interesting. Cause it's not like you said, homeworky. It almost feels like you're you know, you're getting this advice from one of your bros and you're always going to take the bros advice over your doctors <laughs> for yeah. better or worse, you know? Yeah. Yeah. I also <laughs> feel, I also feel like I want to throw in right here when, when I read Frank Meyer on anything, uh, I get excited about it oh, because well, I know that it's going to have this, like we keep saying energy, this, uh, <clears throat> rocket fuel behind mm -hmm. it. Yeah. <laughs> and it's going to be done a certain way that is very rock and roll because your personality is very rock and roll. Yeah. So, you know, if you're reviewing a record, I read the, Oh man, that's really good. Well, no wonder I like it, it <laughs> by Frank Meyer, you know, um, that, and that's happened quite a few times in, uh, in, in my years, uh, in the business. So, 
uh, of course, of course. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you for your time today, Frank. This has been awesome. Um, I knew it was going to be a great episode just because you, you, you're so, uh, your talents are so wide ranging and you approach them all with this boundless enthusiasm. And, and, uh, I j- we just knew it was going to make for a, for a great episode. I think a lot of people are going to enjoy getting to know you if they don't know you already. Can someone like Google you and just see all kinds of like, just, does it just say a giant <clears throat> and, you know, it's just say kicks ass. I, I don't know. You know, it's funny kicks because ass. I've never, I've, I don't even like, I guess, you have to do your own Wikipedia entry or something to get that started. And I'm just not one of those, like, I'm not going to go and start my own fucking. Yeah. I, I, I hear you. you know what I mean? Like, I, yeah, I hear you. I feel like if I'm not famous or worthy enough that someone's going to put me in there, then I'm fine. Get, not being in there. Family, you know what I mean? <laughs> get a family member. Right. But I'm just saying like my career is like, and I, and I don't even really have like, there's not like a frankmeyer.com because again, it, it sounds stupid, I guess, because in this world of, marketing and branding um i i i like the work i like yeah. doing the work i'm not really all that interested in the in the credit don't get me yeah. wrong i my name you know i put my name on my work yeah, but yeah. like the idea of starting a website that i maintain where i just write about myself and just post it it just sounds like douchey to me and the idea of like call, call me, me entering call, my call own me douchey then douchey. no no don't get me wrong douchey. all my no 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 it's money let me back that up let me back that up (laughs) all of my projects and bands have websites and have social medias and i of course have a social media where i'm connecting the dots and you know like if you go to at the frank meyer on instagram or look me up frank m meyer on facebook or i have a band campaign you'll see like oh he's doing all these things but then people and that's fine because that's what social media is hey here's what i'm up to so if you want to know what i'm up to come here and you can see they can just google you and they can find all your social right but people have said to me though like i've done interviews where they're like well isn't there like a frankmeyer.com where like you know someone connects the dots between your books and your films and thor and the hip-hop and stooges and this and i go no and they go why not i go because who else would maintain frankmeyer.com besides frank meyer and i'm already (laughs) full of frank meyer i don't need to spend okay. my non-frank meyer time writing about frank meyer frank you know meyer's I mean? frank meyer's fucking busy yeah <laughs> so the one thing i don't have time for is to document like me i'm my art is the documentation i need to document the documentation of the art like <laughs> what is your uh, what does your outgoing voicemail say? Hi, you've reached Frank Meyer. Busy as fuck. You leave a message. Bye. I, I don't even know if I have it. I'm sure I do. It probably just says, I'm Frank Go by the I got to go by the Yeah. But you know what I mean? Like, like, like I, I feel like, I mean, I actually feel like it, it would be, there should be a way to intersect because I have had a very interesting career with all these things that would not seem like they should intersect and they intersect sort of through me. But right. For, it would take an exhaustive amount of research to put all this stuff together. And I promise you, I'm not the man for that. Right, right. right. <laughs> yeah, I, I want to bring up your brother real quick. So, sure. you know, he's been, he's been, uh, he's been kind of Hollywood uh, since he was, how old? He's been very you know, successful. Make, yeah, making My brother movies. Brecken's, well, he yeah. started acting when he was a little kid, you know. Oh, oh is, what, uh, so, what just so people just so people know we're talking about Brecken Meyer. Yeah, yeah, and most people probably like his most famous role to like 
Joe Schmo walking down the street as he was in, um, he was Travis Birkenstock in Clueless. And then he had that show, um, Franklin and Bash. And he was uh, the voice of my favorite thing that he's done is he's the voice of Joseph on King of the Hill and um, Robot Chicken, a lot of cool stuff. A rat race, road trip, blah, blah, blah. And he's also a really good drummer. He played drums for years in The Night Watchmen with um, Tom Morello and was the original drummer in The Streetwalking Cheetahs. Wow, um, I did not know that. Yeah, and so, and Brecken started acting, I mean, I think he was like five or six. Like when oh. he was in grade school, we went to school with Drew Barrymore and Drew Barrymore and Brecken were like, sort of not real boy you know like boyfriend and girlfriend yeah. like when you're you know little kids on the play are like this is my girlfriend yeah and um but she had just done et and was like the biggest child actress in america and so i think brecken got a pal around and like go to on a couple sets or something with her and kind of goes like oh this acting thing looks awesome and um Ooh, look bowls of free candy right yeah, yeah. you mean you just sit in a trailer play video play atari and eat candy this is a great job I could have this job now. Um, so he, Drew introduced Brecken to her agent, who at the time was a company called Harry Gold, and they were the biggest child actor agency in America. And so he quickly got this big agent and started doing all these, you know, small roles as the cute kid in TV commercials and TV shows. He was on stuff like The Wonder Years and, you know, L.A. Law is like the abused, you know, blonde Wow. race kid or something and then eventually I mean, he just kept doing it. i mean throughout grade school junior high high school um he just kept acting steadily and then once he got clueless when he got clueless he was in the street walking cheetahs and wow. he actually had to leave the band to go make that movie and then his career just blew up immediately after that oh wow, yeah yeah took a, a while Let me ask you this, do, did do you know if he had like the how many agents has he changed no uh, i don't know yeah. i don't know oh, i, I okay. don't know to pay attention thought it would be an interesting question i'm sure i'm wild guessing a few over the years he's been you know he's been doing this for a long time man. he's a lifer i mean he is with his acting career and his his creative side the way that guys like you and i are with music yeah. like he's a lifer like he's been doing it since a kid he thick or thin highs lows the guy has never stopped he writes he acts he produces if he's not you know if, he, if he's having a slow period and he's not getting a lot of on-camera work then he writes like sitcoms and goes out there and pitches them and he's like wow. show run he's, I mean, he's a really creative guy he and i i don't know well, what it is that gave us both this bug and this energy and we i was a, just i was just gonna say he's related to you so you're not surprising me out there well we have a different i'm definitely more high energy personality wise he's a little bit more low-key but in terms of creativity and sort of enthusiasm and just thoroughness um we are we've always been like that since yeah. we were little kids when we were little kids we used to put on like we would put on shows for our parents where like you know we'd put on a van halen song he would be like, Mom, Dad, you're gonna see the greatest show on earth. And here we go, check it out. And then we'd like put on, you know, Panama. We'd dance around the room with like our stuffed animals, be like, and I'm an entertainer, and he's eating a lion, and I'm fighting, and I'm a you know. and we would like shoot movies and do plays, and like we we were wanted we were clearly gonna go into show business. There's no doubt about that. <laughs> excellent, excellent. Well, thank you for for telling us about that. And uh 
Yeah. And uh, Dave, if you have any, want to wrap up here. No, I'm glad you brought that up because I wanted to get into the showbiz side of his family. Uh, I think if I'm not mistaken, Frank, you've basically grown up in Hollywood. Is that correct? It- uh, yeah. Yes. Well, the Valley and Hollywood, depending on what sort of period in my life it was. But yeah. um, one c- connection to that whole thing is that so when Brecken and I grew up, we went to the school in the Valley and there was a lot of like actors kids and sort of showbiz kids at the school. Um, Drew, Drew Barrymore, you know, she was a little kid actress. But other than that, I mean, we were all kids. So she was the only one that was actually famous herself. More Mainly it was just that like some of these folks had like famous parents and stuff. Mm. But again, we were kids. So like if someone was like, oh, you know, that that kid's actress or mom is an actress, I'd be like, I don't know who Leslie Ann yeah. Warren is. You know, what do I right. care? Like, <laughs> right. Um, <laughs> but we went to school with Frank Zappa's kids and I met Moon and, and Amit when I was in second grade. Wow. And then I met Dweezil when I was in sixth grade and Dweezil, when I met him, he was already playing guitar at, he'd been playing for about a year and he had made this single with Eddie Van Halen and his dad called my mother's a space cadet. And he would have been written up in some of the guitar magazines. So I, I knew people in his family I really didn't know who Frank Zappa was besides the song Valley Girl, but I knew that Dweezil knew Eddie Van Halen. And I was such an Eddie Van Halen freak that I was just like, whoa, that's cool. So then when I hung out with Ahmet, we were riding bikes and he was like, oh, you should come over to my house. And I went over to his house and I met his brother. And I was like, you know, Eddie Van Halen. He goes, yeah. I go, <laughs> yeah, but like, how, how old is Dweezil when you I was, at him? I was probably 12 and Dweezil was 13. And what I remember is that I told Dweezil I could play guitar and he grabbed a guitar and thrust it into my hands and was like, let me see what you can do. And I was like, "Uh uh-oh. And I, you know, (laughs) I played my stupid little licks and then I handed it to him and he played like Mean Street flawlessly or, you know, Eruption or Hang Em High or just something like ridiculous. And I was just in awe of him because especially because he was my age and he had gone to my school and um, we became best friends really quickly. And he basically decided that if we were going to be friends, it was not acceptable that I wasn't, that I was at the level of guitar playing that I currently was. <laughs> so he, he took it upon himself to greatly improve my playing mainly, I think just to save his own embarrassment levels, you know? <laughs> so he, but he, I have these still, he would draw me out. Like I have this whole notebook that Dweezil hand wrote wow. for me like scales and tabs and all this stuff. And so he got me to be a, really good guitar you know and at the time and he got me a few leagues above where i was and we wrote a bunch of songs we had a band river phoenix was in our band we had a band with oh. river phoenix and donovan leach and um you know we just were friends for a long time so fast forward to now uh amit zappa and i uh amit has a company called monster foot productions he produced the frank zappa documentary that came out and um he and I had reconnected right before the pandemic and we teamed up and I'm now working for his company, Monster Foot Productions. Uh, the book deal that I just got is through Amit's imprint deal. So he helped wow. me basically score this book deal. So Amit and I, I mean, I've been friends with this, the whole family my entire life. So it's just, it's all this sort of long story, well, but. You've made an honest, you know, because it, I feel like because it's your childhood friends and you didn't ride on their backs or anything, but. Right. And now you now you're working with these these kids that were your little buddies, right. and and you're right. it's that's man that's that's a 
you could say charmed life, but you didn't ride on anybody's back. You did it on. No, no. And it's all just honest. Yeah. Like we're, we all grew up together. We love each other. I mean, yeah, he, you know, awesome. he, and, and the, the same thing when we've been talking about all these people and the through line is that the, these are all just really talented, hardworking people. Like my brother has worked his ass off to be where he is. Ahmed Zappa is one of the most creative, like inspirationally creative people. I mean, I think I'm a creative multitasker. He may, he puts me to shame. That wow. guy, you think I have high energy, man? That guy is unbelievable. And, you know, a lot of the folks that I've been lucky enough to work with, whether it's Eddie Spaghetti or even young Dave here, you know, these, you meet people along the way where you, you, you get drawn to them because of their energy or their talent or their fun and their charisma. And, you know, just like you guys have stayed friends all these years, like I'm still friends, like Amit and I have known each other since second grade. My one of my best friends, this writer named Scott Chernoff, I've known since third grade. All the guys in my band are the same guys who were in the band 25 years ago. You know, I met Thor in 1997. I just played on Thor's last record. You know what I mean? Like, yeah, relationships. You know? Yeah, relationships. Yeah. Well, that's that's amazing. Uh, you've you've um you've done great with yourself, man. You've grown up to be a fine young man. Why? Thank you. Oh, and you guys knew me when I was just a little rapscallion out there on the streets, sleeping on my couch. Yeah. yeah. You know, yeah. I'll, I'll, one funny, quick little anecdote. I'll tell D Dave, if you don't remember this is one time at South by Southwest, we played a show where well, we played five shows in 24 hours. So we played in like San Antonio. We did an in-store and then we drove and we did, a Casino El Camino daytime show at in Austin. And then we played with Wayne Kramer at Emo's that night. And then we woke up the next morning, did a, a daytime Wayne, Wayne Kramer show, and then a nighttime Wayne Kramer show, because we were also Wayne's fans. So we had five shows in 24 hours. And we'd been on tour. This was the tour where we first met Dave. So this was like the second time around. So we'd been on tour for four weeks with no nights off. So we was just like, you know, at this point, by the time I met Dave, I was two days into a tour with fresh face and like, hey, man, blah, blah, blah. And then a month later, I'm like a fucking zombie. And I'm three shows deep into a five show within 24 hour run. And this is my memory. Dave, you correct me if I'm wrong, is that we had after the Casino El Camino show, we all walked down the street to, to Emo's and the band sound checked. And then there was like a three hour window where we didn't have anything to do before they opened the doors for this next show. And Dave and I were sitting on, this is back when Emos had that, the original Emos had that outdoor area. And we were sitting on this bench. And what I remember is being mid-conversation with Dave talking about rock or something. And I kind of just closed my eyes and all of a sudden it went from daytime to nighttime and Dave was gone and everyone was gone. I sort of like just blinked and I was like, what the fuck just happened? Like everything was gone and it was nighttime. <laughs> like and I didn't know what happened and I wandered into the club and I see my whole band and Dave by the bar and I walk up and I go what happened and where did you go and he goes dude <laughs> you and I were in the middle of a conversation and the eyes your eyes rolled to the back of your head you slowly closed your eyes and just slowly fell back and collapsed and started snoring 
and that was three hours ago and you've just been unconscious this whole time <laughs> and it's gone from day to night and the cleanup crew had been coming around me and i was just lying there unconscious that's abduction you were abducted you were like I who knows what happened during those three hours yeah i forgot about that but now that you're now nah, yeah it's, it's <laughs> i mean dude so many great memories with you and uh and and so much you shared with us today i'd love to keep talking man but we got to move on uh you got it let's get into our shot of rock and roll all right frank so my shot of rock and roll is for you and uh it kind of ties together a couple of your loves and your talents and uh jason i think is going to be interested in this one as well i didn't know this about you until maybe a couple years ago frank but you're a huge john bush fan and i never knew that about you and so my question to you is, given your documentary skills and your love of John Bush and Armored Saint, have you ever considered doing a documentary on Armored Saint or John Bush? Um, yes, in the sense that I am a huge, huge, huge uh, Armored Saint fan and John Bush fan. And, uh, and a lot of people don't know he was also the voice of Burger King for a while. There you go. Uh, John's had a great career and he's probably my favorite heavy metal singer of all time. I would say if you listen to when I sing in, in that style, when I sing heavy metal or even really punk rock, now that I've made this connection, if you listen, you'll be like, oh, he's just doing John Bush. Like John Bush is a very big vocal influence on me, his whole approach and attack. And I always like the fact that within the power metal genre where a lot of guys would do this higher register singing he always was like a paul rogers you know and sang kind of bluesy like him and paul shortino from rough cut were always to me it's, the guys that were like the more bluesy about rock singers. more about tone yeah tone and, a, and he can hit high notes and stuff oh, yeah. but but he would do it you know in a way that felt bluesier to me and more connected to like sort of 70s rock than you know a lot of like lizzie board and a lot of the guys from his era who were doing the kind of like you know merciful fate and all that high register stuff which that's cool too but i like the bluesy thing better sure. um sure. i love john i love john and he's a great guy so i think there would be an interesting documentary so if you guys uh, are in touch with him feel free to put me in touch with him because i think that's a great idea yeah i'm I, i'm in touch with him um i can i can mention that i believe yeah. that not to like bust bust our uh our shot of rock and roll wide open, but there is an Armored Saint documentary. There is, now. yes. Well, that's yeah. the other reason is that there is a recent Armored Saint documentary that's coming out. Yeah. And there was one years ago called A Trip a Through Trip. Red Time. Yes, yeah. I have it. I have it right here, right. arms linked away. Shall I grab it? Yeah. Right. So, you know, I don't know if, if there's necessarily uh, room for a third one, but uh, I do think it's super interesting. <laughs> I will tell you really Why quickly the hell not? that the first I saw Armored Saint a bunch of times when I was a kid. I was a huge, huge, huge fan. I saw the show where Metallica opened for Armored Saint at the Palladium, and that's the world-famous show where basically Metallica completely smoked Armored Saint in their own hometown and kind of made medieval metal irrelevant in, like, one show. They literally they took the entire genre. They came to L.A., and all of a sudden, every single band that was doing the medieval stuff switched to jeans and T-shirts because Metallica just... Yeah, just not, not, to not to dwell on that, but, but at the time, just to kind of give a visual, Armored Saint was actually wearing armor. Oh, full armor. Yeah. Oh, yeah. The, 
what happened was, and I would like, so I, I had seen Armored Saint with Laws Rocket actually before that. I love, I loved Laws Rocket too. And I loved Armored Saint. I was all in to the metal and the armor. And they would do this thing at their bigger shows where Bush would come out in a full suit of armor and another dude would, and there'd be like triumphant Excalibur music and they'd get into a sword fight. And then Bush would pretend to kill the other guy, pull off his mask. You'd see it's John Bush, the audience explodes with with approval and then they'd launch into march of the saint okay but i was at the show where metallica showed up in jeans and t-shirts and played the entire first album and debuted creeping death and no light show no backdrop four dudes in jeans and t-shirts with pimples and they just fucking crushed and just literally redefined metal as everyone in los angeles knew it and soon the world and the entire Palladium was, to my mind, the, the, the single most insane mosh pit I've ever seen. The whole thing, I just, I went up to the balcony because I was terrified. And I just watched the entire floor as this swirling pit of death. And then, <laughs> then after that, the lights go down and Excalibur music comes on and Bush comes up. And the whole audience who paid to see Armored Saint booed. I booed. We all booed. We all just, what the fuck is... Like it was so dumb. All of a sudden, all that armored saint shtick just seemed ridiculous. And 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 15 minutes ago, it was genius. But Metallica just showed up and played Creeping Death, and all of a sudden, we were just like swords and sorcery. <laughs> well, and, 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 every, and, and and the and that made history, and it made everyone. Uh, I mean, I saw Armored Saint plenty. And of by the way, Armored Saint still continue oh, to be a great yeah, band, but they dropped yeah, yeah. the medieval shit immediately. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I actually saw them on tour when they came through Texas on the first tour, and there were a couple of shows where some of the guys were wearing, I mean, even on the Delirious Nomad tour, they were still wearing some of the armor, but yeah. the whole thing where John comes out in the chrome. I think that was the last that time was, they ever did it was after were, that Metallica they show. Like, fuck that. They were like, fuck that. Yeah, and the thing is, Meta I mean, Armored Saint were a great, band a great power metal but they didn't need the shtick it's just that they yeah. were in the era when everyone had shtick it was that per post motley crew post wasp era in la when everyone had a gimmick and everyone had to be shocking and you know that was just their shtick yeah and the, the thing is is metallica much the way that nirvana a few years later and guns and roses a few years later like sometimes bands come out and are so strikingly different and so raw like the ramones and motorhead yeah. that that all of a sudden everything else looks ridiculous and everyone drops their shtick because they go yeah. oh now it's stupid yeah. yeah and i love shtick i love all that stuff but you know you can't put shtick next to the ramones because it looks stupid <laughs> yeah. right well since the armored saint documentary has been done a number of times then maybe we narrow the focus down to john bush because he alone just the man himself has a has a great story with armored saint and anthrax and the voice of burger king and just his singing style and uh if anyone could do it justice I put my faith in Frank Meyer. Hey, man, okay. I'm in, baby. Well, we can talk about this when I finally get the balls to call John and try to get him on Talk Louder podcast. Oh, we'll, we'll bring hey. up Frank. We'll bring up Frank Meyer. In. Or you have me call into that one, and I'll and I'll and I'll uh, regale him with uh, my love. <laughs> we can, we can probably do that. We could probably fly in a phone call. Do it. And have you? I, I, I spent a while in and talk I had a about wacky that. night with John Bush one night when I was at KNAC. And he was um, around the time that they put out the Revelation album, Armored yeah. Saint, which was sort of a reunion album for them. 
Yeah. Um, I was, you know, big, big, big fan and all the, everyone at, at KNAC knew John because they were old school, you know. Sure. And so somehow I arranged that John and I were just going to go out on a night on the town and I was going to interview him. And we went to Borders and drank a lot. And then we went to uh, this club called The Garage. And I think we went and saw the Super Bees, who were like a punk rock band. Um, and uh, John and I just drank a lot that night and had a really fun night. And I got like four hour, I, I did like a three part John inter John Bush interview on KNAC because we had so much good stuff. But yeah. Well, he's, he's, a, he's a great guy, uh, John Bush. He's been, I've, I used to pen pal with him as from, you know who introduced me to John Bush is James Edfield. Oh, right on. But that's a whole other story, and uh, and I've been in touch with him and happy to call him. Have you heard the new Armored Saint record? It's killer. Yeah, yeah. Bush sent me a cup, a copy a few weeks ago. Awesome. And, uh, they're, they're unstoppable. They they're are. They're a yeah. great rock and roll band. I really feel like they're probably the most, over time, like the most consistent metal band of their of their era in the sense, I mean, and again, this is all opinion, yeah. But you know, I like I love a good Megadeth record, but Megadeth, you know, sometimes makes these really poppy yeah. records, sometimes makes these really proggy records. They're not yeah. always super focused in you know in what I like from Megadeth and Metallica, same thing. But you know, I still feel like I can only really listen to the first three Metallica records with you know like in terms of like repeatedly. Well, it's what, you saying, it's what you fell in love with, right? But yeah, and I mean, and, 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 and every, with the other ones, like, they're all great. Same with Anthrax. Like, they, the record comes out, I listen to it, I go, oh, this is great. And then I kind of never really go back to it because it just doesn't stick in my brain the way that some of, but the Armored Saint records, dude, those records, they do stick in my head. And like, I still can name every single song off Revelation and sing it. Like, wow. th they're all, they're strong albums with hooks. And I always yeah. say the secret songwriting is hooks, hooks, hooks. It doesn't matter whether what your genre is, metal has hooks. Punk has yeah, hooks, that's you right. know, South of Heaven and Slayer. Those hooks, 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 man. Right. Hooks is, do you remember the song? If you don't remember the song, there wasn't a good hook. Yeah. Right. Yeah. No, I'm just saying, it's great hooks. Slayer has choruses. Hell oh, yeah, they do. No said. No said. You know? Well, I leave the Bible in a pool of blood so the zone of his life can affect me. That's a hook. I mean, it's a satanic, murderous hook, but it's a hook. Yeah. <laughs> you know? Those are the best kind. Yeah. <laughs> so Dave, yeah, take, I mean, us home. Dave, take us home. Sorry to interrupt you, Frank Meyer. We, Frank. we one the uh, let's give a round of applause. Yeah, a round of applause for Frank Meyer. Frank Meyer thank you, thank you. Wow. What a guest. What what a show. What a what a what a storyteller and what a life you've led and continue <laughs> to continue to live. So thank you for spending some time with us today. And uh we wish you continued luck with all your projects. We'll be keeping an eye out for them. Uh, meanwhile, folks, uh, I'm Metal Dave Glessner on behalf of our guest, Frank Meyer, my co-host, Jason McMaster, thanking you for listening to another episode of the Talk Louder podcast.